Very good. Well, uh, today we move on to our sixth and final lesson here in our uh, brief series on the end times. As you can see, we are not covering every little nook and cranny, just trying to give some uh, major contours, some, some, a scaffolding that you can stand on so that you know how to approach this topic. And hopefully there's been a little bit of clarity. Uh, but I'll be honest, these, these topics have become so entangled that if you still feel a little foggy on some of these things, then my encouragement is to persevere. And when you come to the scriptures, when you come to books like Revelation or to passages that seem to be talked about the end times, especially remember those Bible reading uh, principles that we talked about in week one. Things like remembering where you are in the Bible and thinking about genre. Remember covenant theology and the covenants that may be in, uh, that, that are in progress and, and happening at the time of the writing that you're reading. Because if the prophets are writing about the future, they're going to use the language of those covenants to talk about future things. Okay, so they're going to talk about a temple when they speak of the new heavens and new earth. They're going to talk about sacrifices when they speak of the crucifixion, you know, prophetically. Things like that. New Testament controls our interpretation of the, the Old Testament because it's the apostolic authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, the clearer passages are our control for interpreting the less clear passages. And generally speaking, you're going to have something clearer in like the letters of the New Testament than you will in prophetic passages. So it's, it's good as much as you can to use something that Paul or the other apostles say uh, when you are looking at something like the Olivet Discourse or when you're looking at prophecies from Revelation and things like that. So those are some of the general principles. I think if you take those things and begin to harvest those principles, then you won't, hopefully you won't feel so foggy or entangled when you come to those particular kinds of passages. Today we are looking at the final judgment. The final judgment. There, this is a certainty that we need to understand. We need to understand some of the basic things about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must. This is a word that is sometimes translated as necessary. So you can't get past this. It is necessary that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Paul says in Romans 14, when he's talking about judging one another in the church and the, the, uh, uh, the inappropriate passing of judgment on one another. Uh, he says, why do you despise your brother and pass judgment on him? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Interesting there in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, it says the judgment seat of Christ Romans 14, it says the judgment seat of God. Ah, very interesting. Uh, and then, uh, the, so we have this certainty that this is going to happen, that a final judgment will take place. And, and Christ himself will dole out a just judgment uh, to everyone. But there's questions that remain. This doesn't, just by reading these two passages that are quite clear, there's still a lot of questions. So we're going to try to answer in a very introductory way today a couple of big questions. First is, when will this judgment be? And what, what, what will it be like, generally speaking? What are some of the main characteristics of the final judgment? 
uh, as we've uh, tried to look at a little bit uh, during some of our study, the, um, I think it's safe to say again that the primary view of eschatology in our day, in our country, would be something close to dispensationalism, some form of it. And here again is the chart we've got up on the board. Right here, we are, we're in the church age. Okay, so we've mentioned that many times. This is where we're at. And if you hold to a dispensationalist view of the end times and what you're waiting for next is the rapture. We saw that that's not what this is, what the passage in 1 Thessalonians is talking about. It's actually talking about resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection of all people, especially believers. So uh, the dispensationalist view says there's a rapture, seven-year tribulation, second coming of Christ bodily, then an earthly millennium where Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem. And then the nations revolt. Again, I want you to think about this. This is a glorified kingdom on earth. And yet, people can revolt? People who have received resurrection bodies in that same realm can now revolt against Christ? That doesn't work. Let's just just be honest about that. It doesn't work. So now, again, in this chart, earthly millennium, the nations revolt. And then sometime later, you know, pretty close to this, you have the great white throne judgment. That's basically the final judgment. And then you're in the eternal state after that. Now, if, uh, if you hold to this kind of a view, then there has to be more than one judgment seat of Christ. More than one event where people be, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Because there'd be a judgment that takes place of some sort at the rapture, when believers are caught up. There'd be a judgment at the second coming of Christ after the tribulation, depending on how people have responded to Christ during the tribulation. There'd be a judgment regarding the nations based on their revolt against the glorified Messiah who's on earth. And then there'd be the big thing, the great white throne judgment. There's kind of four different periods that you could be thinking about if you hold to this predominant view of dispensationalism that we are, we are meant to say that this appearing before the judgment seat of Christ is uh, somehow connected to all of those. And I want to encourage you again... This is complicated and entangled. The Bible is actually pretty simple on this. Are there things that we don't quite understand about these matters? Yes. I think that's also pretty clear. (laughs) There's some mysterious elements. We don't have every tiny little detail. But what the Bible says about the final judgment is quite simple in comparison to this. Okay? So uh, today, we're going to have, I guess it's safe to say we'll have kind of two anchor texts. And then I'm going to try to give some proof texts alongside them as we go along. And the first text I'd like for you to turn to is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 through 12. And again, uh, the... the the primary topic that was troubling the Christians in Thessalonica that Paul talks about in both his first and his second letter to them had to do with these end-time things. 
the resurrection of the body. And remember, we've talked about how they were concerned that their loved ones who believed in Christ and were now dead, they were concerned about what was going to happen to them. And there was, there was some misconception about, uh, misconceptions about what happens to believers who are still alive when Christ returns. So there was a lot of things troubling their consciences. And here again, Paul is saying pretty clearly some of the things that are going to happen in these last times at the very end. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Now, we're asking this first question here, when will the final judgment be? That's the first question on our minds. Verses 6 and 7 here in this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is taking up in his own way, he's taking up the language of the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, which progresses in the book of Genesis. But in its earliest stages, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, here's the, the covenant promise that God gives to Abram. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Okay, so there's a pretty simple doctrine of retribution involved. If somebody blesses the the, the righteous seed, my my people, I will bless those people. If somebody afflicts or uh, harms or curses my people, I will curse them. Now, Paul is speaking in similar terminology here in verses 6 and 7. Paul says that those who afflict believers will be repaid with affliction. So this is our first category that we want to look at is simply the the wicked. Okay, the wicked who afflict. They afflict God's people. Then there are also those in the passage who who receive affliction and then are granted relief. Okay, they're granted relief. Those who have blessed the Holy Seed, then they will receive blessing. Okay, so those who are, by faith, heirs of this covenant promise, they receive blessing. We have the wicked on one one hand, and we have uh, the righteous on on the other hand. This is pretty clear and obvious stuff, but I want you to see the categories in the passage. Okay, so the righteous uh, who are relieved... We have the wicked, they, are, they, they afflict, and then they are repaid for that. We have the righteous who are relieved. 
Now, verse, that's verse 6 and 7. Now let's look at verses 8 and 9. This explains how God repays the wicked. What is involved with this repayment, recompense uh, of the wicked for the affliction that they were causing upon the righteous? Verses 8 and 9, uh, we see things in that passage like um, flaming fire, vengeance. Okay, so this is, this is justice being meted out. Um, it is the Lord himself taking revenge. There's uh, the idea of suffering punishment, of eternal destruction, of being cast away from God's presence. Um, th- this is, this, there's a certain finality to this, to what the, the wicked are going to face, according to Paul in this passage. Um, all of these elements are talking about the event of the final judgment. Okay? All these things, the vengeance, the punishment, the, the com- coming uh, in flaming fire, it's referring to the event of the, the final judgment. Um, when is that? When does all this take place? All this that we've been talking about, when is it? Let's look at verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, so when does all this take place? At Christ's second coming. You are not waiting for a rapture. You're not waiting for tribulation. You know, a seven-year tribulation. That's, that's now. We are symbolically in a time of tribulation. I should say that the era is symbolic. The tribulation is real. <laughs> it's literal. Okay, we're waiting for, and we're, we're, we're experiencing this right now too. Not later. The, the reign of Christ is now. We are simply waiting for the second coming of Christ. And when that happens, we have the final judgment. Again, verse 7 gives us the timing. It happens when the Lord Jesus Christ appears. Another detail about the timing of the judgment is that this, this all happens here after the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so Christ comes, the second coming. There's the resurrection of the dead. And then we have this doling out of the vengeance of the Lord. One thing that we need, we're going to look at a passage to show this. But one thing we have to realize is that the, the biblical writers aren't always talking like it's been charted out in their head. So they're not get, always giving us every single detail. Right here, Paul is skipping the resurrection of the dead. Because his, his topic at the moment is vengeance upon the wicked and the reward for the righteous. But he has brought up the second coming in his first letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4 will be caught up with him in the air. So that also happens at the second coming. So we, we, have to, we cannot demand from the biblical writers what they didn't give to us. They're not always talking in terms of then this and then this. And then this. They give us different kinds of indicators. They're not writing systematic theologies. They're writing letters to people who are in need. Okay? So we we cannot demand uh, from them what they don't give us. But we can read Scripture in harmony, let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we can get the basic timeline. So right now, what we found is that the final judgment, which includes all this, happens at the second coming. But it also happens after the resurrection of the dead. 
Um, if, you, if you like, you can turn with me to Revelation 20. That passage that everybody agrees about. That's not true. That's a joke. <laughs> um, Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. This is, we, we've looked at other portions of this for understanding the millennium, for understanding the binding of Satan. These are very hot, hot topics and the, uh, the question of end times. We're now going to look at uh, the rest of the passage that we haven't read yet in this series. This is verses 11 through 15. Uh, this is the Apostle John. He's seeing visions from the Holy Spirit. And here's what he sees. Then I saw a great white throne. So that's where this language comes from, great, great white throne judgment. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not, written, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, all right, here's what we see in this passage. At the great white throne judgment, we see the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. That's who's at the throne, the dead, great and small. And then it says the dead were judged. So um, those are the two actions taking place here. All the dead, great and small, which is an inclusive uh, terminology, are gathered and then they're judged. Um, Who is this? Who is the dead? It's all people who have ever lived. All people who have ever lived. It is believers... Okay, who, who are we? The question right now, as we're thinking about the timing of things, is who are the dead at the great white throne judgment? Okay, it includes believers. And we see that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the passage about the rapture. Which again, the rapture is the bodily resurrection. That's what that actually is. The bodily resurrection. So we have here 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, that's when Christ comes, his second coming. And uh, those who are dead in Christ are raised first. And all the rest who are still alive are transformed. So everybody gets a goes, passes from death to life, receives a resurrection glorified body, um, and that's who's there because we're all raised from the dead. And that's who's there. It's the dead at the great right throne, judgment. It also includes unbelievers. Daniel chapter 12. 
verse 2. This is a passage where we're seeing the same things taking place. Books are opened, and, uh, the, and people are gathered to God himself. And the prophecy that Daniel sees is that, uh, again, it's Old Testament. It's a little shat- more shadowy. But it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. In other words, they'll be raised too to receive a body, but it'll be a body that is now fit for everlasting corruption. Um, we see the same thing in Matthew chapter 10. This is Matthew 10, verse 28. You know, Jesus says in this passage um, that we shouldn't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Hell hell is not merely for the soul. It is for the body as well. So not only will believers be raised from the dead and given bodies, but so will unbelievers. But whereas believers are fitted for glory, unbelievers are fitted for everlasting corruption. And these are the dead who are appearing at the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. Okay? Uh, I, think th- I think this is relatively uncontroversial if we're coming with, with, without the tanglements of all this. So, yeah. You also see this in the writers of Hebrews in chapter 9 where he says, all men will die. Yeah. They will, there will be an appointed time for judgment. Yeah, yeah. And there will be those that are cast... And, and right for judgment, judgment. Right. Fit. And then there will be those who are waiting for the consummation. Right. And uh, so that just adds to who is being judged here. Right. Nobody is exempt from judgment. That's right. Yeah, it's appointed for, what's it say? It's appointed once for man to die, and then, then comes judgment. Right. Yeah, so all those who, who, are, who have been on the earth are now gathered to this great white throne judgment. Um, all right, here, here's the main conclusion about the timing of all of this. We have the second coming. We have the resurrection. And we have the final judgment. Christ comes, he raises everyone who has ever lived. And then we have a judging based on what you did in the body. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, that's. Well, it's just that it's not. Sorry, I, I'm not doing this very systematically, but this would be uh, depending. Depends on exactly what the dispensationalists are thinking when they talk about this. But this, we could probably say that this would be the. You know, we talked about the tribulation being generally happening now. Well, then, and then there's kind of a ramping up of a greater degree of it. This might be what they're kind of referring to. And we'd, we'd have a place for that. It's just that it's, it'd be, yeah, that the tribulation's happening now. Then right before Christ comes, Satan is unbound. He's loosed. And there's revolt and apostasy, that kind of a thing. Yeah. All right, second question then. What will it be like? What will the final judgment be like? 
We, um, we've already read Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Um, here are some other things that we see here from this passage. The first thing to note, what, what it will be like, is that it will be a day of glory. It will be a day of glory. Uh, It says in in, uh, verse 11 of Revelation 20, uh, the judgment is marked by this great white throne and Christ who is seated on it has a presence so glorious that earth and sky flee. Uh, That's uh, that's, uh, um, figurative language, but I think this is all taking place close to when the the, the new heavens, new earth will come. The old creation passes away. So whatever the case, the glory is of such magnitude that uh, the heavenly bodies are fleeing, as all the prophets kind of saw with the, with the day of the Lord. Um, we also have, just to bolster us in this, Second Thessalonians uh, 1, verse 10. Again, we were looking at this passage earlier. It says, when he comes... On that day, to be glorified in his saints. He will be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. He will be marveled at. Paul goes on to say later in that passage that uh, he will be glorified in us and us in him. The, the glory of the risen Christ will abound to his people because we will receive bodies of glory at this point. So it'll be a day of glory. His great white throne the, that image of white is meant to, is meant to help us see the, that it's a, um, a bright, glorious event. And uh, his glory is of such a magnitude that even heaven and earth flee away. It's also a day of truth. This is uh, Revelation 20, verse 12. Let me see if I have another verse here. Mainly Revelation 20, verse 12. Verse 12 uh, gives us two kinds of books, and the contents of both books are made known to everyone. Okay, that's the main thing to take away here. Truth. Uh, Everything is out in the open now at this point. Uh, one, one kind of book is just generally the books. The books are opened. And then there is the book of life. Then it says, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There's a standard that God has. I mean, his, his law is the standard. His righteous judgment is the standard. And uh, he knows whether or not folks have lived up to that standard based on what is written in the books. So again, we are in figurative language territory here. Um, we are not to say that right now in heaven there is a 
physical book with all your deeds literally written down in them. The only material, as far as I can tell, the only material thing in the heavenly realms is the glorified body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It is a spiritual realm. So this, is refer- this books is a figurative way of speaking about God's righteous judgment and how he knows, how he knows everything. It's written down in the books. Okay? He knows everything we've ever done. Um, so these are like the logs of all that everyone has ever thought, said, and done. Everyone. Um, and then uh, the th- even the things that weren't public but were written on your conscience, even that is opened up in the books. So the Belgian Confession in Article 37, that's the, last, that's the article on the last things, it interprets this very specifically for us. And it says, then the books, that is, consciences, will be opened. So you cannot hide anything in your conscience anymore. Uh, it'll, it'll be out in the open. Um, the Book of Life, the second category of, of books, refers to the names of God's <coughs> elect whom he has redeemed. Uh, and this Book of Life is actually, it, it appears throughout the scriptures. Even Moses talks about the book of life. Blot me out of the book, he says in, in Exodus 32 or 33. Um, Blot me out of the book would mean, for the sake of Israel, take my name out of the book and leave them in. You know, that's from a human standpoint. The book of life is fixed. He knows whom he has uh, called to himself, and it's those whom he has redeemed. All right, so it's a day of truth. On this day, the truth will be fully known so that justice can be rendered. You've got to know the truth if justice is going to be rendered. Okay, thirdly, we've got four of these to, to talk about what it's like. The third one here is it's, it's a day of sentencing, not of investigation. And I think this is an important distinction to make. Cornelis Venema makes this very helpful uh, distinction in his book on, on this topic. Uh, we, we can't press the image of a courtroom so much that we, we interpret the day of the Lord as though it's just an earthly courtroom where nobody's really sure what happened. You've got to do the investigative work and you've got to prove it to the jury. That's not what this is like. It's a day of sentencing, not investigation. Why? Because God already knows. He's always known. Okay, so the Lord already knows everything that everyone has ever done. And further, I think there's also an, an, an interesting distinction to make. Everyone who, is, who has died has already gone either into the presence of the Lord or not. So in that sense, there's a lot of knowledge about like who did what. Who believed and who didn't? There's already that knowledge. Nobody's got to investigate that. Okay, that maybe it'll be new knowledge to some people about, you know, that, I don't know. You know, we don't want to get lost in the weeds. But the, the point is that it's not a day of investigation, like Jesus has got to figure it out. It's a day of sentencing. It's the, it's the uh, sentencing hearing. Um, so not, not in, in a day of investigation, but a day of sentencing. So the final judgment, this day of the Lord is the day when the great judge announces the sentence for every human being who's ever lived. What is now the actual reward for what you've done? Um, and there are two options. There's two options. 
we have Revelation 20, verse 15. Which says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of, the, of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's one sentence. A resurrected body that's fit for corruption, now consigned to the same judgment as Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and all the nations who did not bow the knee, which is, that's who we're talking about here, is all the peoples who did not actually bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The other option for sentencing, you've got to read on into Revelation 21. Uh, Let me actually read that. Revelation 21, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and then uh, verse 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. That's the covenant promise. That is the promise of the covenant of grace. I will be your God, you will be my people. Okay, From the very beginning. Here it is, now consummated. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. You have uh, two options on the day of sentencing based on what you have done in this life. Either you can be consigned to the lake of fire with a resurrection body, or you can have a resurrection body fit for glory, and instead of a lake of fire, you will live in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, where the triune God through Jesus Christ dwells with his people. We will be be like him, for we shall see him as he is, John tells us. And we will dwell with him as surely as the Spirit of God filled the temple in the Old Covenant. So surely will God fill this new heavens and new earth, and we will be with him. And you will not be able to sin anymore. You'll, you'll finally have that same ability that Adam had. The ability not to sin. We don't have that ability now. We can't help ourselves. But that will finally, the corruption of original sin will finally be taken fully away. We will be perfected in body and soul. And this is the heritage of God's people whose names are in the book. That's the sentence. It is uh, fourthly... A day of vindication. Since it is a day of sentencing and not a day of investigation, like what's going on here, who's getting in, who's not, it's not that. It's a day of sentencing. It's on that basis that it is a great comfort for believers. It's a day of vindication. And I press you to reconsider the day of the Lord in those terms. Not as a day of helicopters and battle of Armageddon happening on the hill of Megiddo in Palestine and hope, hope we make it. You know, it's, that's not, it's not what it's like. 
The Battle of Armageddon, we, we didn't get a chance to look at this. The Battle of Armageddon is that God himself summons the nations to come fight against God's people, and then he destroys them. There, there's no battle. There is no battle. He destroys them all. Uh, that's what's happening in, in the Revelation 19 and 20. It's no, there's no uncertainty here. It is a day of vindication for the people of God. Here's how we know this. Um, it's because you are already justified and acquitted. Already now. It's a day of sentencing. We're not wondering about the verdict. If we're going to keep, keep up with the court, uh, courtroom language. The verdict has already happened. Here, here it is. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, the condemnation that marks the day of the Lord, it doesn't belong to you anymore and can't on that day. The verdict has already been announced. You're just waiting for the sentencing. And it's a good sentence. We've already seen it. You get, you get the heritage of the Lord and of his people. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the, sin, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So you get, you get the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth because you're righteous. Not in yourself, but you've got the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, there cannot possibly be any condemnation for you. The verdict is done. You're just waiting for that day of vindication when now what God knows and what you know, the whole world will know. It is uh, open vindication because it's a day of truth. Now everybody will know. Everybody will know what we've done. And so we will all glorify the risen Christ who has washed away all those terrible things we've done in thought, word, and deed and given us his own righteousness. It's a day of vindication. Um, so this is no condemnation now, and that no condemnation, we're talking about justification by faith here, that justification that we, we understand and recognize now becomes vindication later on this last day. Matthew 10, verse 32. Sorry, you may not be able to see that. Here's what Jesus promises. For everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ himself, the Lamb who is on the throne throughout the book of Revelation, will acknowledge you, your name, before his Father. It will be an open declaration that you are righteous and acquitted. Okay? That's, that's just the sentencing. It's just the sentencing. You're righteous, and now you, get to, you come in to this new heavens and new earth. These are some of the things that we have to keep in mind when we think about the day of the Lord. And uh, I think the implication, many of the implications are pretty obvious that we have all the incentive in the world to find rest in Jesus Christ and to live a life of obedience before him. Um, it's a day of glory, of truth, of sentencing, and of vindication. All right, why does this matter? There's a few reasons why. One is because we want to know the truth of the matter. We want to know the truth. We don't, we don't want to be confused about when, when do we face judgment. We do face judgment, that's true. 
But we're not facing judgment as though we are among the nations and we're, we're, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and you know, I'll just be honest, this chart instills a lot of uncertainty and confusion as it does with all these different topics. Um, it's why it's important that we understand that Christ reigns and that we will have tribulation in this world. Same, same things. And that tribulation, it's like we saw today in, in uh, Mark chapter 4. Tribulation does not mean that suddenly the announcement of no more condemnation has been done away with. No, it's, that's not what's going on. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You are righteous in Christ. You're just waiting for the day of vindication. Don't let tribulations and trials tempt you to think otherwise. We want to know the truth of the matter. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter, Peter uh, addresses scoffers who claim that Christ will never return. So there's people who are uh, troubling the consciences of these Christians saying, where is uh, the promise of his return? M- many, many things have happened since he promised he'd come back. Uh, and Peter addresses them by saying, well, um, there was a similar promise in the days of Noah. And a lot of people thought, this isn't going to happen. And then like that, the day of judgment came. And um, so we want to know that a similar truth that Noah and his family had. Judgment will come. Persevere in the faith. We want to know the truth about what exactly we are looking forward to. We're waiting for the, the, uh, the blessed hope of the appearance of Christ. So we want to know the truth. That's one reason why it matters. It also matters because uh, we are called to have knowledge. We're called to have knowledge. That's a biblical charge to all believers. Believers and unbelievers alike are entitled to know what the day of the Lord will be like so that we can be encouraged as believers and so that unbelievers now can be warned. This is, not, this is no laughing matter. It's not a joke. This is the inheritance, this here, Revelation 20, verse 15, and following. That's the inheritance of those who do not believe on Christ. And it is a tremendously awful thing to think about. To dwell on the the idea of eternal punishment is very troubling. It's a horrible thing to think about. We need to do that. Um, So we need to have the knowledge of it. We need to have uh, comforts for believers, and we need to have warnings for unbelievers. In a certain sense, we need warnings for believers, too, to help us. That's the purpose of warnings in scriptures, to help us persevere. All right, and lastly, we, uh, it matters because of assurance. As we've already seen, the verdict, what justification is, is the verdict of the last day already announced. So there's no, you don't have anything to worry about. If you are righteous in Christ, it's done. It's done. You're just waiting for that open vindication. Um, That is where assurance comes from. That's where assurance comes from, is to continue to remember what Christ has done. It is a once-for-all atoning sacrifice. He does not uh, apply through the Holy Spirit his saving blood and then take it away. (laughs) No one can snatch snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. No one. Yeah. Yeah. Most of us who grew up in the evangelical uh, background still have residual terror for the church together. And all of this stuff that is being talked about to scare the, the living stuff out of you. Right. Um, instead of talk about our 
justification in Christ, there is now no condemnation to those who are Right. Every week, I still have residual, uh, unhelpful application of the law from hearing it all my life. Right. We do that to ourselves anyway. It's the reason why absolution is so important. You're getting a taste of that final, final judgment where God says, you are yeah, it's important to hear, I think, get corporately, too, when you're thinking about the, the fact that it's a taste of that vindication to come. It's important to have a corporate declaration of pardon as well to remind ourselves this isn't just a me and Jesus type thing, but this is the inheritance of all the saints and all the world will know one day this, uh, this wonderful vindication. Um, all right, that, that's all I have. There, there's many other implications, but... Uh, I wanted to focus on these ones. We, we need to know the truth of Scripture and, and try hard not to get confused and entangled in, in, you know, tricky understandings of the final judgment. There's one day of the Lord. There's one judgment seat of Christ. And when we appear before his throne, any fear that we have will be that good, godly, reverent fear. We will see how meager our fear of the Lord was in our earthly existence when we finally see him face to face at this great white throne. But it will not be a dread of, of, of the terror of hell. It won't be that kind of fear. It will be a joyful and humble fear of the Lord because we will be waiting vindication. We need to have that knowledge and that's where assurance will come from. All right, let's uh, end our time together. If you've got your handout there down at the bottom of page two after the notes. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily.